A reading from Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some, of, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, starting with verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The gospel of the Lord. You, you may be seated. Good morning, church family. So good to be with you all today. Um, 
In the church calendar, we are in this season of Epiphany, which is this really great season after uh, Christmas and then before the season of Lent, which comes up in March. And it's a season of, um, historically, of recognizing the call of Jesus going out to people going out into all the world, that the light of Christ is never intended to be for a specific group of people or contained in a place, but he always goes out into all the world. Uh, Epiphany, this word that we use before, I mean, when we say I had an epiphany, it's really I've had a revelation of some sort. Something's come to my mind. Something's been revealed to me. So Epiphany is this season where we read all these texts and these stories of Jesus being revealed in particular ways. That's why it's also a season of mission for the church. The church says this is a season where we ought to tell people about the gospel. Now, we ought to do that all the time, but especially during this season, that it goes out to everybody, people on the margins. So we've been talking as a church about our desire as a community to grow, to invite more people into our community. And these texts really inform that in a significant kind of way. Um, So we're continuing in this series. I, I want us to see three things from our passages today, three things about Jesus not usually a preacher who has three points in a poem, but I might have that today, right? Um, first of all, Jesus breaks oppression. I want us to see that today. Jesus mends factions. Jesus mends factions. And Jesus plucks out of chaos. Jesus plucks out of chaos. Okay, I want to see those three things today. Our passage in Isaiah refers specifically to light that comes in darkness, There's something that comes alive in me when I hear this passage from Isaiah the prophet that says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. I don't know why, that just excites me. The people who have lived in the deepest darkness, the pitch black, the most far away kind of place, on them a light has shined. This is good news. Israel went through times all throughout the Old Testament, we see this, of deep darkness. Times where they wondered, has God given up on us? Are we still God's people? Because things seem really dark. Maybe you've experienced those kinds of moments in your life where it just seems like it's the end. It's dark. Where do we go from here? In the original context, Isaiah is warning Israel that they're going to be attacked Okay, they've got these armies, these enemies that are coming after them. He's telling them that they're under judgment, God's judgment, by way of the armies of Assyria and later Babylon. And particularly this judgment is coming upon the administration of King Ahaz, who is a descendant of David. But Isaiah is so great. If you read the book of Isaiah, there's always judgment and hope right together. Like the two are always intersected. So the hope here is God will not give up on his people. They're gonna go through this difficult time, but God won't give up on them. In fact, there will be a new king, a child who will be born, who will be a light. And the original context, this may have referred to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who we see in the story would bring about light and who would end oppression. People would look back on the birth of Hezekiah as a significant moment because Hezekiah was faithful to God. He was a great king and a great reformer. But as Christians read this, we see another layer to it, don't we? Not just the story of Hezekiah, even though it certainly is that, but we see Jesus as this great light, the light to Israel, but also the light going out into all the world. And what I love about this passage is that um, there seems to be a correlation between the depth of the darkness that's experienced and the light that shines. 
Darkness, this is just an obvious statement, darkness is the absence of light, right? And so there is something in this that we're just supposed to visibly see about the darkest, darkest, darkest point for them, for the person who's there, for the people who stand in the deepest darkness, the light is for them, it shines for them. And then we have this verse there at the end, for the yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor you have broken. What does it mean that God breaks the rod of the oppressor? What what does that mean? When I think about oppression in this passage, I think about a few things. First of all, I think the most obvious one that we think about in this is political oppression. Uh, In many ways, we live in a world that is just simply not fair. I think we all identify that a lot, that our world is just not fair. There's so much about our world that's broken. It's unjust. And different people in our society like to place the blame at the feet of different people. So some people say the government is to blame. Some people say major corporations are to blame. Some people say the police and the justice system is to blame. Some say Hollywood and the entertainment industry is to blame. Some say it's millennials. And then some say, okay, boomer, right? (laughs) I think it's fair to say on some level, it's all broken, right? The reality of Jesus is proclamation to those systems that they don't have the final word, that they're not the end all be all, that no matter what system it is, that it's not complete in and of itself. This is good news to those who are are oppressed, that God's light is here. It's here. At the beginning of the passage, it says it's good news for Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These were towns that were the most vulnerable because they lived on the edges. So the enemy is coming close to attack the people of God. And these two towns are like on the front lines. They're the most vulnerable. Anytime they were attacked, they were the ones that would be scared. Well, this says the light comes to them. They're the ones in deepest darkness and the most fear, the ones who live on the furthest margins. This is good news for them. And I think for us, it's so important to say that who are the people in our world who live on the furthest margins? The people in the darkest place. This is good news for them. I think that goes for your coworker who is in the midst of tragedy and loss and chaos, going through a divorce or family strife. I think it's good news for them, all kinds of economic uncertainty. It's also good news for the populations in our world that are in war-torn areas, that are in incredible poverty. The good news of Jesus is light has come, right? But here's the thing. Most of us in this room don't live on the margins. We're not Zebulun and Naphtali, are we? So it would be easy to turn this into a moralistic message for us today. We could say, this is good news for them. So our job today is to kind of pull ourselves up and to go proclaim this good news to them. We could just end it there and say that that's the message. And I think there's something right about that, but there's something also troubling about just leaving it there. Because it's so critical for us to remember that he, that God is the burden reliever, not us. We can't snatch that mantle away from him. We can't put it all on our shoulders and say we are the burden relievers. If Christianity becomes only about the good that we can do, we've missed something. If it's only about a group of people getting together, inspired by Jesus's example to pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps, we don't understand the gospel. 
And there will always be a ceiling to our ability to help the burden, relieve the burden of other people. There will always be a ceiling to that. We have a lot of helpers in our church. Um, Some of you, it's part of your profession, and it might be the reason you went into the profession. We have teachers, counselors, nurses, etc. Some of you, maybe it's not your profession, but you're just really nice, helpful people. (laughs) You're just helpers. You're just, that's naturally who you are. And it's often easy for us to take other people's burdens on ourselves. It's easy for you as a helper to take other people's burden on yourself in order to fix them, to believe that it's up to you to fix them or that it's up to you to fix the system. Maybe some of you feel like that's your whole job is I'm just trying to fix the system. I'm just beating my head against the wall, just trying to fix this broken system. And my prayer for you to hear today is that the yoke of oppression you've placed on yourself is broken. God is the burden breaker. Don't steal that role from him. And the good news of liberation has a liberating effect. So here's what I mean. You can only understand liberation for others when you understand it for yourself, right? So the prayer here is stop carrying that yoke that you've put on yourself. Stop running a million miles an hour trying to prove something to other people, to prove something to yourself or to prove something to God because he is the light and he's invited you to simply reflect it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work hard to alleviate oppression. Of course, that's what it means. We work incredibly hard to do that. But we do so not going, my skills and my ability are the end, right? We do so in going, Lord, may I reflect your light into a broken world as you take the burdens off of others. So we see that Jesus breaks the yoke of oppression. Also, Jesus mends factions. Um, Last week, we talked about how Paul began his first letter to the Corinthians by reminding the Corinthian church of their identity. He says, you're a holy people. Holy is this idea of you're set apart, you're different They have everything they need, he says. You have everything you need. And if you read the letter, Paul is about to call them out for their behavior. He's about to tell them they're doing some horrible things, some awful things, and they need to stop doing those things. I told you last week, it would be tempting for me with everything the Corinthian church is doing, if I were Paul to say, Corinthian church is canceled now, right? Like you've done all these horrible behaviors, like like stop it. But no, what he tells them is, you are called in this particular way. You are God's people and your behavior is not lining up with that. So remember who you are. Well, here, Paul addresses one of those things, and it's divisions in the church. There were a bunch of factions, a bunch of quarreling going on in the church. He says, there's quarrels among you. We might even be able to call these proto-denominations. Like these are like denominations of Christianity in some sense that are starting to emerge in the Corinthian church. And unfortunately, we know this idea of quarrels and division in the church really well today. There are thousands and thousands of Christian denominations that had something in common with each other and then some little difference they decided to split over. And then somebody split from them and somebody split from them, right? Over and over again. So we have these thousands and thousands of denominations and the church is divided. Well, Paul's prayer is that they would be perfectly united, it says. The word here for perfectly united is this idea of restoring or mending something that has fallen into disrepair. So something's been broken, and Paul says that 
his desire is it would be mended. In fact, it's the same verb that's used in our Matthew passage that we're going to talk about to describe when the disciples are mending their nets, okay? So they're mending the nets, and he's saying, you need to be mended. You need to be put back together, and that's what God, God is going to do for you. Paul hears that they're not united. What's his source for this? Chloe's people, Okay, that's what he says. Chloe's people have been telling me that you're not divided. So he's got this kind of source with the household of Chloe going on here. People are arguing about who to follow. And it sounds like some of them are saying that they are more special than other people because of who baptized them. Because this guy baptized me, I'm kind of part of this special group or this different group than everybody else. And I love Paul's response to this. Maybe you picked up in the reading, like Ashley leaned over to me and said, he sounds so sassy. Um, Because what he says here is really human. He says, I thank God I only baptized two of y'all. Like I didn't baptize very many of you. I only baptized two of you. And he points out Crispus and Gaius. He says, I've only baptized two of y'all, Crispus and Gaius, and that's it. And then he says, okay, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember who else I baptized. (laughs) It's like this really human moment. He says, some are saying I'm of Peter or Cephas. Some say I'm of Apollos. Apollos was um, probably, we think from history, a particularly skilled preacher. Uh, People look to him as a really, really good preacher. Paul helped start this community in Corinth, but maybe there's a bunch of people there that are like, well, Paul started us, but we really like Apollos. We're following Apollos, and Paul addresses that here. Other people, so you've got these people say, I'm of Cephas or Peter. You have people that say, I'm of Paul. You have people that say, I'm of Apollos. And then some people, this is my favorite group, they say, well, we're of Christ, right? Like, Like, we're just of Christ, which of course is like the right thing to say. Like any Sunday school answer, you know, they say, if you don't know the answer in Sunday school, you just say Jesus, and that's probably the answer. That's what this group is trying to do. They're saying, oh, well, we're just, we're of Jesus. Our denomination, our group is really just more like Jesus than everybody else. Um, But the scholars think that this group was claiming a kind of exclusivity. So what they're saying is basically, we're the only ones who are really in Christ, okay? So it shows that even Christians can use the name of Jesus to divide from each other. We can get into a kind of doctrinal purity where we're so convinced about our particular point that we exclude everybody else who calls themselves a Christian. And that's troublesome. Here's one thing I've learned in ministry, and that's whoever your hero is, maybe the pastor that raised you, maybe the theologian who you love or the denomination that you're part of, hold your heroes loosely, okay? Because we're all human we're all flawed, we're all broken. It may be tempting at times, if you have a great experience at a church, you discover a certain form of spirituality or a preacher that you love, to think that that's the final answer. But Christian leaders are all flawed. And that's good news because God uses flawed people. Here's another thing. Hold your heroes loosely. Hold your friends' heroes generously. Be careful not to demonize specific denominations or Christian leaders because of your perception of them. Um, It's important that we keep Christ at the center, not a particular person or a particular ideology. You guys know I come from a very eclectic church background, right? Raised charismatic, kind of like grew up in ministry in a kind of more evangelical context, and now I'm a 
an Anglican priest, right? <laughs> so it's kind of a mix of a bunch of different things. I grew up in a charismatic church and I went to a university, a Christian university that was part of that tradition, okay? Our chapels were powerful and vibrant, okay? Like everybody had to go to chapel. So it was the entire student body had to, required to go to chapel. Um, we had a really pretty strict dress code. So everybody had to dress really nice every day for class. Okay. So we walked in, people were fancy. People would wear, uh, there were some aspiring preachers there who wore three-piece suits every day to school. <laughs> you know, like, like we were fancy, right? And, and we would go in and powerful worship, vibrant worship. Um, if you would ask somebody, just a random classmate, how are you doing? They'd go, I'm blessed. Right? In fact, it would probably be, I'm blessed in the city, blessed in the fields. Blessed going in and coming out, right? Like it was a thing. It was a litany. It was exciting. The campus was vibrant. In fact, I remember one time in chapel, we had a particular speaker who really wanted to spark revival in the school. Now remember, this is a real university too. Like it's like a, like a full, like accredited the whole thing, right? <laughs> but we're in chapel and, uh, and she says, I just pray for this day when the power of God is so strong that you won't even be able to go to class. Like the Holy Spirit will be so strong. You won't even be able to get up and go to class. And I had a roommate who was a very cynical <laughs> roommate from Rhode Island. He wasn't used to all this stuff. He leaned over to me and he said, so um, will it still be a university then? Because I came here to get a music degree and I paid a lot of money. Like, can I still please go to class? <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of the, the era that we were in. Also, the campus was built in the 1960s during the space race kind of era. So if you go on campus, it still looks like um, the Jetsons a little bit. Like it's big gold buildings, giant hands in prayer. You know, like it's just a really interesting architecture. Everything was big over the top. Now, I grew up in that tradition and I love it. And it wore on me a bit over time. But after I graduated, I enrolled in a seminary at a school three hours from where I lived. And I drove from my home to class once, sometimes twice a week. And it was a three-hour drive to go to a four-hour class and then come back late that night. And this campus was different than the other one. Um, it was built in the late 1800s, and the campus was quiet, like really quiet. Like, I think even the birds took a vow of silence or something. Like, it was still. The students dressed simply, like no flash at all, right? The school was a Quaker school, so it was steeped in this idea of contemplation. And I was shocked when I, we would pray together in class, and these people could sit silently and still and pray for hours, you know, and just without saying much at all. And over time, I began to appreciate my new surroundings, and I began to appreciate, whoa, there's something really deep about this, and contemplation that's beautiful, and at the same time, grow in appreciation for where I came from. I remember when we would pray together in a group, and sometimes somebody would pray, and it was always really quiet, and then I'd go, mm, amen, and they all kind of jumped. <laughs> didn't expect anybody to say that, right? Um, but I began to learn the appreciation of that, and then also appreciate the fact that the place where I came from, there was always a sense of expectancy, that there was always a sense of we're going to encounter God every time that we gather together. That was beautiful, and that was beautiful. It was amazing, right? Both were formative experiences for me, and so it's caused me, not just these two experiences, but all that I've had, to always try to be careful not to quickly dismiss any Christian tradition just because it's new to me. 
So in talking about the different factions in Corinth, Paul says that he was not sent to be the guy who everybody said, Paul baptized me, right? People weren't supposed to be able to say, I am of Paul. In fact, Paul says here, I'm a preacher, he says that, but I'm not all that eloquent in my preaching. It's not about me, Paul says. In fact, he says, if I was so eloquent that it was about me, I would be robbing the cross of its power. If it was all about me and supplanting me instead of the gospel, then that wouldn't be what this whole thing is about. The whole thing is about Jesus and the reality of Christ crucified. And Paul reminds the church of something really important here. We can't be reminded too much that the cross looks like foolishness to the world. This story that we've all bound ourselves around, this thing of Jesus died for us and rose again for us, it looks like foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense to the world. Christians believe that victory came through defeat. The world was saved through death, death on a cross, which was an embarrassing death. So there is a foolish thing that binds us in this room together today. (laughs) To the world, it looks silly. It looks foolishness. But here's the thing, our diversity, the fact that the body of Christ is so different is a strength because somehow all of these people who are so radically different and have radically different points of view on a myriad of things are bound together as Christians by this foolish story, right? The way of the world is that we all have to agree with one another. We have to convince each other and we have to fall in line. That's how empires work. We dominate each other. We convince each other until we all kind of agree. That's unfortunately in our world how a lot of corporations work. The leader casts a compelling vision and your job is to fall in line and not show weakness or disagreement, right? But in Christianity, the only agreement, (laughs) maybe this is too strong, the only agreement is in the cross of Christ. We can disagree on everything else. We are not called to just say, let's all just get along and diminish our difference. It's to say, no, our difference doesn't have the final authority. Jesus has the final authority. In the midst of difference, we proclaim Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And somehow out of this otherwise broken and divided muddle of people, God makes a people who shine his light in the world. So Jesus breaks oppression, Jesus mends factions, and finally, Jesus plucks out of chaos. In our gospel text, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9, that Old Testament passage that we read. So we actually got Isaiah 9 twice today because we read it in the Old Testament and then Jesus, it's quoted in the New Testament. In Matthew 4, Jesus hears that John the Baptist is arrested, and so he goes to Galilee. That moment represents a time of great darkness in the world. Jesus had been waiting to do his preaching, but now that John is arrested, he knows that this is the time. And perhaps Matthew wanted us to see here that um, this is a moment of great darkness. John has been arrested. And in the midst of the great darkness, we see the light shine. So he goes to Galilee. And if we remember from Isaiah 9, that's the place that's described as far away. So he goes to the place that's far away that is supposed to see a great light. Well, the spoiler alert is Jesus is the great light of Isaiah 9, right? He goes to the place of deepest darkness and he is the light. Then Matthew directly quotes Isaiah 9 
And Matthew's being really clear here. The hope that Isaiah proclaimed, light to the world, the one who would break oppression, that's this guy, Jesus. What does Jesus say? He says, repent, the kingdom has come near. That's just a, it's another way of saying, turn away from the other things that you've turned to and reorient yourself in the way of God's story. Reorient yourself away around this new reality. Jesus sees these fishermen and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Well, what does that mean? That is an odd metaphor for us, I think. I think it can be a problematic metaphor and it's been used in problematic ways in the past. Think about it for a minute. We moved to a new house this weekend and we had a home security salesman stop by. And he saw the, uh, that the house was sold and he said, so I've been coming by every day to meet you. <laughs> right? This guy asked to be let into the house and he had his spiel and he had his whole, he, was, he, he found out that I was a, a pastor and he said, well, I got a number one rule and it won't offend you. I put God first in everything. This guy was fishing, okay? <laughs> he was fishing for this business here, right? He asked to come inside. Again, he was trying to butter up my parents. He's recommending restaurants to us. I, I, if I didn't admire his tenacity, I would have been very frustrated with him. And I think that's what we often hear when we think of fishing, don't we? We think of like trying to reel somebody in, like trying to maybe even be sneaky with them in order to try to get them in the boat, being salesy. I told you that this metaphor has been abused in a lot of ways. My mom tells this awful story about how when she came to faith as a teenager in the um, Jesus movement in the 1970s, that it was popular for youth leaders to encourage young girls to date guys who weren't yet Christians in order to convert them. It was called Fisher evangelism, right? Awful. It's been, this has been used in horrible ways, I'm telling you, right? And this is a weird metaphor for us because we look at this and we go, okay, is Jesus saying that we catch people in order to devour them for our own sake? Isn't that what fishing is? Or to ec gain economically from them? Like we sell them then? Like what is that? Or, or to dominate them? That can't be Christian evangelism. No way, right? But we got to understand in the first century, fishing was really important. It, it was part of being in harmony with creation. Fishing was, according to the fishermen, was part of kind of stepping into the creation and being part of the life cycle, it was being at one with creation. There was no such thing as a hyper-capitalism then where all you did was catch fish in order to make as much profit as possible. No, this was their everyday life and existence and sustenance. The fish were treated with reverence. Catching a fish was seen as the natural result of the life of a fish to keep the cycle going. And also, as weird as it sounds in the Bible, fish were often likened with pagans, okay? So there was a correlation between people who were pagans and fish. Why? Well, we've talked about this a lot before, but in the ancient world, the seas were a place of chaos, place of disorder. The seas were where evil came from. Even false gods were seen to come from the sea. So we see in the Bible that God created out of chaos in the, in the Genesis story, revealing that he has supremacy even over the things that are scary and chaotic, right? Then we also see in the Exodus story that Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea, okay? So God is Lord over the sea, over the chaos. So really, when Jesus says to the disciples that they will fish for people, 
he's using a rescue metaphor. Jesus' disciples are called to pluck people out of chaos. Okay, think about it that way. Also, the way they fished in that world was different. We think about fishing as putting bait on a line and then casting it out and doing that whole thing, right? Right? You guys ever fished before? Okay, cool. Right, <laughs> thanks. But the, uh, but the way they fished before is they dropped a net, a large net. The fish rested in the net and they were drawn in. It was a very different kind of way of fishing. The net would drop and the fish would be swept up in the net. Now think for a minute about who Jesus chose to be his first disciples, fishermen. They were people of the sea, people of the chaos. In fact, parts of the gospels tell us that their accents would reveal that they lived in fishing villages. You could tell by the way they talked that they lived near the water and they were fishermen. They would smell like the sea all the time. These are people who carried the stink of chaos with them wherever they went. These are the people who Jesus called to be his disciples. He has rescued them. The call of discipleship, the call to follow me is the call of rescue. The people in darkness have seen a great light. The people are in disorder and division and they are being restored. The people who are steeped in their chaos are being rescued. In fact, I think the fact that Matthew mentions that when Jesus called them, they were mending their nets is intentional. When you read the gospels, look at the details, the little details in the story. They were mending their nets. Up until now, they have mended nets to catch fish. But as God establishes the church, those who follow Jesus will always be in the process of mending and being mended of allowing God to weave us together even as on our own we are broken and divided. Jesus invites us to trade our fishing and mending for a life of a completely different kind of fishing and mending. And look at their response. They left their means of livelihood. They left their father. Now today, when we think about leaving our Parents, we think of that as a sign of independence. It's a sign of growing up, right? But, but in that world, it was actually an awful thing to do. Families stayed together. So the fact that they actually left their father was we're leaving our entire life behind. We're cutting everything off. And they followed him. They gave up everything and followed him. Why would they do that? Again, foolishness. But there is something about this foolishness. There is something about this Jesus who is a game changer. As we close, um, think for a moment about where you find yourself today in all of these stories. Think for a moment about the burdens that you are most familiar with, the oppression, the yoke that you're most familiar with. Where do you see oppression the strongest? Some of you might say, in the lives and the family systems of the kids at school that I encounter. Or at your work, and you see, my work is just broken. My workplace, there's just so much dysfunction. Some of you may see this brokenness and this oppression in broken systems, in bureaucracies, on the news. Some of you may experience this in your family. Some of you have a lot of pain in your family. You wrestled with that. What do you do with that? What do we do with that, those places where we see this yoke of oppression? 
Well, sometimes we can just throw up our hands in cynicism. Just say, well, it's never gonna get better. Just forget about it. There isn't anything we can do about it. Sometimes the opposite happens. We try to carry that burden on ourselves. Do you think it's up to you? Or do you think it's even just partially up to you to fix everything? My prayer for us today is that we may know the one who breaks the rod of the oppressor and that we may know that the rod breaker is not you, (laughs) it's God. Now, I want you to think about the factions in your life, the places where our relationships with other Christians has been damaged for a number of reasons. In what way might the apparent foolishness of the cross be the very thing that draws us together? In Christ, we don't have to trust in our ability to go along and get along, but in the reality that he is our savior, our Lord, our King. And finally, where's the chaos in your life? Or where's the chaos that you see clearly in the world? My prayer today is that you might hear as the disciples heard in the first century, that God is calling you into something new. He is plucking you and plucking the world right right out of the chaos. In what ways might we think about the church simply as those who follow Jesus as he plucks the world out of its chaos? In what ways might we think of our calling as fishers of people, as those who call people out of the world's chaos and into God's rest? Maybe just one of those sticks with you today, but... Jesus is the one who breaks oppression. Jesus is the one who mends factions. Jesus is the one who plucks us out of chaos. Amen.